Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Travis Watts, who's had a lot of success as a full-time passive real estate investor. So this is really going to be a fantastic episode. Really excited to dive in. Uh, it's going to provide a lot of insights for passive investors. So Travis, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Marcus. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the show here and thanks so much for joining us. So a little bit about Travis. He's a full-time passive investor. He's been investing in real estate estate since 2009 in multifamily, single family and vacation rentals. Travis is also the director of investor relations at Ashcroft Capital. He dedicates his time to educating others who are looking to be more hands-off in real estate. So Travis, you kind of bring a unique perspective here, you know, being that full-time passive investor. I know I've interviewed a lot of active investors and, you know, syndicating deals, putting together that, um, but you know, you're going to bring a unique perspective here. So before we get into too much details on the passive side of things, could you actually kind of tell a little bit about your story, how you got to where you are today and, and how you initially jumped into real estate? Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. And we were talking just just for your audience before the show. Uh, I, I know you've had other uh, passive investors on here, and I love that because, you know, we're, we're all not created equal. We're all not the same in philosophy, opinion, and points of view. And so uh, happy to share just an alternative perspective uh, to the passive investing side. So uh, to your point, I got started in single family real estate, as you pointed out, 2009. I got started in the way a lot of people get started with real estate, which is just buying you know, a rental property in your own backyard, so to speak. Didn't know what I didn't know, didn't have mentors, didn't really have resources and books and bigger pockets and all the things available to us today. And uh, you know, in some ways, I'm grateful for that. In some ways, you know, I would have done things differently had I known better. But uh, the the funny thing is, in my story, what happened? I'm just going to give you the, the the fast forward version to my story. You know, I was working a lot of hours at a W two job. I worked in the oil industry. I did 14 hour work days, 98 hour work weeks. Um, you know, two weeks on, one week off. If I got that week off, worked overseas, worked out of state, and all the while, I had this dream that. I wanted to create this massive single family home portfolio. I want to have, you know, 100 single family homes, this kind of thing, right? I didn't know exactly when that would occur or how that would occur. That was just my my naive goal back then. (laughs) So what happened is, you know, about five, six years into this, working as many people do, doctor, dentist, lawyer, attorney, business owner, you name it, a lot of busy professionals out there, as you're aware, and trying to scale up all of these homes, I burned myself out on the active side of real estate, just trying to go too hard, too fast. And it seemed like instead of, hey, I can see that light at the end of the tunnel, seemed like it was kind of closing in on me. And so 2015 rolls around, I'm completely spent. I'm just burned out. I'm just un- motivated to do anything <laughs> at that point. And I thought, you know, I, I was just very frustrated. It was a tough year for me, but I broke through that through self-education. So I decided, okay, 
I need to find mentors. I need to find coaches. I need a network. Uh, I need to read more books on the subject. I need to listen to podcasts. I need to join bigger pockets and online forums like it. That was a huge breakthrough year. And I went overboard. That just seems to be what I do. I'm, I'm an extremist, but whether it's, you know, full-time active, full-time passive, full-time education, <laughs> just all in. And so 2015 was a crazy year. 52 books is what I read that year, in addition to all kinds of other resources. And what I discovered, long story short, in that year was there's a way that you could be hands-off with real estate. Not completely, not 100%, but there is a way that I can not manage tenants and toilets and termites, as the common phrase goes, and I can still participate in the cash flow, the potential equity upside, things like this. And um, it's something that I could stomach in the private real estate space, unlike the stock market. And I just can't deal with the volatility that comes with that style of investing. So I made a big shift. I, I got serious about it. I, as I said, I, I educated myself. I finally figured out my true net worth. What I did is I said, hey, if I sold everything, if I liquidated all these homes, I went to cash, I paid the taxes, I just went complete, you know, cash in the bank. And then I, then I came back in these uh, apartment syndications or private placements. What could I conservatively expect for a cash flow amount? Ran those numbers and decided, hey, two things. One, <laughs> I could leave this oil field job that I don't like. That is fantastic. But more importantly, why do I want to leave? So I can pursue things I'm actually interested in, right? I mean, we only live once, theoretically, so might as well be spending my time on things that, um, you know, th things that I enjoy that I can help other people in. And so that, for me, became real estate. And so that's what I do today. I help educate uh, other folks, mostly on the passive side, busy professionals looking to be hands-off in real estate, as you pointed out. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Yeah, thanks for summarizing. It's a great story and a great transition. Kind of, you hear that that story, you know, quite often actually. I mean, not just on the passive side of things, but even active, where you hear people are like, "Hey, I kind of got burnt out on this dream of kind of accumulating this massive portfolio with single-family homes." And it's it sounds very attractive. I mean, you kind of get get hooked on those like bigger pockets and stuff like that, and you kind of get in and and you realize, okay, it's going to take quite a while to build up this portfolio. I'm you know, dealing with all these different things of managing tenants, termites and, and toilets, as you had mentioned, and, and it can kind of seem overwhelming and you can kind of get burnt out along the way, but then you kind of stumbled in or, you know, really educated yourself on the passive side of things, which is, which is really exciting to see how you've progressed and come in so far in that period of time when you made that transition. So what does it really look like now, like that now you're considered a full-time passive investor? What does that mean? What, what, yeah. do you, what are you kind of doing? How, how are you allocating your time to, to look at deals? And, and what does that look like for people that don't necessarily understand what that, that means? Yeah, that's a great point. It's funny. I did a um, an Instagram story takeover for Joe Fairless at Best Ever Real Estate like a, a week ago or something like that. And it was funny because what they wanted the theme to be was a day in the life of a passive investor. And and I'm just I'm just winging it. You know, I don't really have a structured schedule. So I'm just you know popping out the camera all day. And at the end of the day, I'm looking back thinking. That makes no sense. Like, that's just chaos. That's just random stuff that occurred. And that's exactly how it is for me. But that doesn't mean that's how it would be for anybody else. And so what, what I'm trying to say with that is the, the beauty of it is you kind of get to decide and structure how you want your day to look, your week, your month, you know, et cetera. I know on your show, 
Jeremy Roll makes the point of a lot of people probably envision, oh, I just sit on the beach all day and I have my pina coladas, right? It's the good life. But, you know, how many people really would do that anyway, even if you could, you know, I mean, theoretically, Jeremy and I could do that, but it's kind of silly, right? Like we still see uh, a need and we still have a desire to give back to others and to network and to keep up with education and, and things like that. So to that point, I'm constantly networking. I'm networking through, I do uh, free 15 minute Q&A calls with real estate investors week to week. I just have an open Calendly link that people click on and book a time. Whether it's something we talk about here on this podcast or blogs that I do, or I just launched a, a, a podcast with Theo Hicks at Best Ever Community uh, called The Actively Passive Show, uh, which is perfect time to bring this up, right? Because it's the irony that it's the active elements of being a passive investor. That's basically the whole theme of the show. We cover all kinds of topics on there. And yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I read a lot of financial news. I'm networking with uh, active uh, syndication groups. I'm trying to learn their philosophy, what kind of deals they're doing. I'm constantly vetting out opportunities. I'm investing and, and you know, completing docs and uh, it, it, it can be busy, but at the same time, the beauty of it is I can take a week on my calendar and just block it off and say, nothing this week. I'm not doing anything this week. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that's, that's what it's all about. Really. When you, when you get to the passive side of it, it's the, the freedom and flexibility to choose your lifestyle. Yeah. And that really kind of nails the point there of being like, you can choose, you can have a flexibility. And, and for a lot of people, it might seem attractive to be like, Oh, I'm going to sit on the beach, but yeah, like how, if you kind of do that, say you're 40 years old and you kind of say, well, am I going to do this for the next 40 years? Is this fulfilling? Like just sitting there and maybe some people that is what they want to do. But I mean, you really get the the opportunity to, to choose where and, and how you spend your time. And if you're really passionate about real estate and, and learning about opportunities and investing and underwriting and all those different aspects, then I mean, that's going to what's that's going to give you the excitement, the energy you kind of need to really feel like you're fulfilled in your life. I actually remember this is you know, years ago, kind of hearing Brandon Turner talk about it on Bigger Pockets podcast, where he's like, well, he got to the point where he's like 2028 20, or something like that. And he's like, well, I achieved financial freedom where like my income exceeded my expenses. And he's like, I could literally just sit home at home all day. And he's like, I did that for a day, watch TV. And I'm like, I'm bored. Like, <laughs> and, you know, decided he had to go back and keep growing and doing different things. And, and uh, it's that element of just kind of like, yeah, you always want to keep growing. And a funny, funny story on that is like, I, for me, like, I actually remember going, sitting on a beach one time, this was on my honeymoon. And I remember bringing real estate books, sitting on the beach, reading them, <laughs> because like, I'm motivated to, like, I like learning, I enjoy it. And I like learning about real estate and, and that sort of aspect. But I mean, <laughs> um, so yeah. now let's talk about, you're looking at deals, you're, you're making investments from a passive standpoint. What are you actually looking for in the deals? What are like what are the most important aspects when you get presented a deal? What are you going to kind of look to underwrite or or uh, try to vet to make sure it's a good opportunity? Yeah, that's a great point, and this is something that you know maybe I have an alternative perspective on this compared to to some other passive investors. So when I started this journey on the passive side, which is 2015 uh, more or less, I I had my three part strategy flipped upside down. It was backwards. And what I mean by that is that there's three components. There's the sponsorship team, the market you're investing in, and the deal itself. Well, I was focused 99% on the deal and 1% could just, you know, fall in the other two categories. And so a couple things with that. One, 
I, I see a lot of people make this mistake of getting caught up in analysis paralysis, right? It's just, you dig deeper and why this number and why that number? And I disagree with this number. I think it should be, and, and it's just, you, you can just turn and turn and turn to where you talk yourself out of pretty much making any kind of investment. And more importantly, um, you know, where a lot of uh, passive investors would probably agree with me, number one should be the team, it should be the operator, it should be the skill set of the team, the track record, the experience, the ability to reasonably achieve the business plan that they're showing you, right? So that's where, where I'm spending my time is meeting the teams and having a Zoom call or a face-to-face -face call before COVID. It was conferences where I was a speaker, a panelist, just networking, running the Ashcroft Capital booth, all kinds of stuff. And and, and meeting these people to get a gut check face to face, getting to, to understand them, as I pointed out, their philosophy and their deal flow. Then uh, I do a lot of macro level research on markets. I look at, you know, where people are moving from right now, where they're moving to, where are companies relocating, which markets have a lot of job diversification in them. So it's not a Detroit in 2008 type of situation. And so to me, that's number two is the market and, and understanding the ins, the outs, the taxes, the, the political scene there, the landlord tenant laws. Then to your point, the deal. So this is important, and I talk about this quite a bit, but when I started out, I did not have defined criteria. It was just, maybe I'll do an A class, maybe I'll do a C class, maybe a little self-storage, maybe a mobile home park, I don't know, why not? Well, <laughs> after experimenting a lot up in the beginning and realizing these are created equal, real estate isn't real estate, multifamily isn't multifamily, there's so many subsets and sectors within them. Uh, I clearly had to get serious and defined about criteria and everyone will be different, but the key is you need to do it. You need to sit down on paper and whether this, this research and knowledge comes out of a book or a podcast or a mentor or a coach or a program, you've got to know, do you like A, B, and C? Do you like value add? Do you like opportunistic? Do you like, you know, core and core plus? You know, like you've got to know what this stuff means, this terminology and, and define it for yourself. And, and how I go about doing that goes one step above, not to get too far down a rabbit hole here, but I'm big into goal setting and, and, and mindset. And what are you really after? What are you really trying to achieve? And you kind of try to reverse engineer that. You know, if you've got a goal in 10, 15 years to be retired and traveling and spending time with kids and family, cool, that's, that's a great goal to have. Well, now reverse engineer, how are you gonna get there? How are you gonna leave your, your corporate job today you know, through multiple streams of passive income, quarterly, monthly, new development deals, like certain things aren't really going to fit into that plan. So defining your criteria is the most important thing on the deal side. And it's aligning to, to your point to answer your question, how do I, you know, vet a deal? Basically, I vetted against my criteria. So I've already, I already know the team. First, if I'm looking at a deal, I already know the team. I already know their philosophy. I already know what they specialize in. I already know their, their track record. And I already know what market they're in. And I already know if I like that market or I don't in general, or that state, I should say. I can't be a master in every sub-market. And last, I'm pulling out my criteria and I'm just, it's like check boxes, you know? Does, does it have this element? Is it 200 to 600 units? Is it class B? Does it distribute monthly? Does it, you know, and, and you can't be black and white on that. I mean, the odds are you're not gonna check all your criteria, but it's trying to get the majority checked off. Um, and, and that's how I approach it. That's my process. Yeah, no, I, great. Thanks for sharing that. And you kind of touched on the first aspect being 
the management team, the operator, and really getting to know them and, and networking and kind of coming across either it's a Zoom call or, or in person and obviously not as much in person these days. But yeah, like how, how does that process kind of go? Like what are some of the maybe questions that you're asking? Like what do you kind of need to know before you feel comfortable? Is there like a certain level of, of time that needs to elapse before or meeting number of meetings or yeah, what are some of the criteria that kind of need to be um, yeah. Is it a gut check? Kind of fill us in the gaps on what you kind of do to kind of feel comfortable with the management team. Yeah, that's a good point too, because <clears throat> equally so, when I talked about analysis paralysis on looking at a deal, you can get an analysis paralysis about a team. If I gave you a list of 300 operators and said, there you go, how are, how are you going to decide? <laughs> you know? So usually everybody's process is different here, right? But usually it starts with a word of mouth referral in my world. And that's because I'm in a lot of real estate meetup groups and I've attended a lot of conferences and people reach out to me and I network constantly. And I'm always asking people, who are you investing with if you don't mind sharing? And, you know, has your experience been positive or, or negative or just kind of neutral? And, and why is that? You know, I ask these types of questions as people ask me the same thing. And this is where, you know, over time, you start hearing a lot of the same names pop up. You know, a lot of people invest with A, B, C, and D, and a lot of people have great things to say or negative things to say. And so it usually starts with that. Then it's reaching out to them. Like I said, it was face-to-face -face because I would just naturally be in a scene probably where I'm going to be face-to-face -face or I would make that happen. Nowadays, it's online and that's fine too. You know, I love these, these Zoom calls. They're free. I, I just added that feature on my Calendly link. Uh, that's a really cool feature, by the way. If, if, <laughs> if, if someone listening out there doesn't use Calendly or something like it, it's awesome. Uh, completely free to use. Just goes right to your Google Calendar and you can do a, a Zoom call or a phone call. And anyway... Yeah, no, I agree. It's great. Panelly and Zoom combo is great. And I might need to upgrade to get kind of what you're referring to in the automatic. Yeah, yeah. Know, it's just really type of thing. There's all types of upgrades you can get, but yeah, great tools for sure. Yeah. And, and so, and that's really it. And so, you know, again, this could start, let's say you're a person that doesn't go to conferences, doesn't travel a lot, doesn't really like the, the, the meetup scene, whatever. Well, join an online forum and, and post some topics, you know, like, hey, I'm, I'm getting ready to invest, you know, with some operators out here in the space, potentially. Anybody have any referrals or recommendations, you know, DM me, uh, let's connect, you know, hop on a phone call, reach out to people doing what it is you want to do. That's one of my favorite quotes, you know, Wh whatever your goals are, active, passive, anything in between or anything specifically, find people doing just that doing it successfully, <laughs> ideally, and then reach out to them and connect. So many people are willing to help you for free, especially in small doses, right? If you want to go take five hours of someone's time, maybe not. But there's coaching programs for that, mentoring programs as well. So uh, that, that's kind of how I approach it. Word of mouth referral leads me to reach out, leads me to phone call or Zoom or face-to-face, as I feel comfortable, yes, to your point, a gut check, absolutely. Aligning in philosophy, absolutely. Uh, aligning in criteria, absolutely. And, and I'm looking for, you know, 75% or greater, you know, like, it, like I said, if you're only looking for 100% on everything, good luck. <laughs> it's going to be pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think actually I saw you post a quote like that on your LinkedIn or something in regards to that, uh, surrounding yourself with the right people and around the people that are doing what you want to do and, and just kind of like talking with them, connecting and just being engaged. And, 
And it goes, triggers my mind back to the quote by Jim Rowan. I think it is, uh, you're the average of the five closest people in your network. And just kind of, it just really speaks to surrounding yourself with people that, you know, going to elevate you and bring you to the next level, whether it be on the education side of things or what you want to learn about in your career, financially, uh, relationships, all those different things. You just want to surround yourself with the right people. So that's really a huge thing in real estate, especially as, as you know, Travis, you're kind of sharing there, you're talking about networking and just being in the network and, and talking with people and constantly, it helps you stay informed, helps you stay um, informed about opportunities. And, and really this business is big in terms of like referrals, whether it be from referrals for investors, referrals for like you know, property management groups and all the different aspects that come into real estate. So that's a really important thing to kind of stay, stay in the, the minds of people that, yeah, you want to be like, and um, so, and next thing there is, um, yeah, you kind of talked about market as being a really important thing. So that's kind of the next thing you look at. What are some of the key fundamentals in a market that make it kind of make sense for you? And, and maybe you have some high level criteria, maybe you go into some, mm-hmm. I think you mentioned macro level research, but what are the core things that make a market attractive to you? That's a great question. So again, (laughs) always the the caveat that everybody's going to have their own process and opinion and perspective, right? But this is my philosophy on it as a full-time LP. So I'm looking at, you know, I'm reading the, the CNBC and, you know, the Wall Street Journal, and I'm looking at, you know, all the data and the stats and the facts on multifamily and real estate in general. And what I'm really looking at is, I'll give you some practical examples. Right now, we're seeing a uh, severely above average exodus from New York State, uh, specifically the city, New York City and Manhattan, uh, California in general. Well, coincidentally, these are both high tax states additionally. And so what what you can look up, this is free data. uh, U-Haul statistics are a great one too. They show you where people are renting a U-Haul and where they're dropping it off, which is essentially where people are moving. And so what you see is just a mass inflow uh, from New York, New Jersey, as an example, into Florida, just as one place, right? So I invest quite a bit in Florida. I generally like Florida, right? It's a tax-free state, a warmer climate, a lot of baby boomers thinking about retirement, these kinds of things. Uh, If you want to take California as an example, a lot of places people are moving from there. But one big one is Texas. So I do a lot of Texas investing. Again, it's a tax-free state. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say a better climate than maybe Southern California, but, you know, a more affordable place to live where uh, the laws are in favor of landlords for the most part. And again, a lot of baby boomers go in there for, you know, trading in their million dollar home for a $300,000 home that's three times the size, (laughs) you know, so kind of hard to beat some of these elements, but that's not to promote there's only two states to be in right now, or those are the best markets or anything like that. And each state, as as another disclaimer, is not created equal. You know, if we're going to talk about Austin, Texas, that's not Lubbock, Texas. Those are not the same. You know, Miami, Florida is not Jacksonville, Florida. You know, so we can't generalize and just say, you know, Florida's great. Well, where? You know, what what type of asset? Again, A class, C class, B class. So to that point, that's my macro level research. And I talked a little bit about companies also relocating uh, to places. And what I like, let's let's use... um, because we're on the topic of Texas, we'll use Dallas-Fort Worth as an example. So the the market, the job market of Dallas-Fort Worth and the suburbs around there, there I believe this is still true as of 2020 and in, in September, October, whatever month we're in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
it, there isn't one sector that that uh, comprises more than 20% of the overall job force there, right? So as you have like oil go up and down and maybe healthcare up and down or retail, you, you've got kind of a, a catch net there, right? With other employment centers and options again, so that you're not investing in a Detroit in 2008, 2009, where really it was all based about automobiles. And if that goes down, you're kind of crushed because multifamily, as you know, is all about jobs. It's all about people's ability to have a job and to pay their rent. And so last thing I'll say on that point is I let the sponsorship team fill me in on the very specific data about the very specific submarket in which the property is located. I can't master three mile radiuses and average incomes and school ratings and all these things, but I can rely on a sponsorship team to provide me with that. And of course I double check and, and fact check, trust but verify. But uh, at the end of the day, why Irving, Texas? Couldn't tell you, but hopefully a sponsorship team could. I could tell you why I like Texas though. So that's kind of my philosophy on it. Yeah, and that's where that whole aspect of trust really comes into being the first thing that you do in the step of, of vetting a deal is, well, look at the management team. If you have that degree of trust and they've delivered in the result in returns before, they've got a long track record and, and people are referring them to you, and then you build that level of trust with them, you're going to have a a lot better, uh, easier of a time to kind of say, or look at a deal and where they've done market research. And then, I mean, it's hard for you to kind of understand that three mile radius. Like you said, you can understand macro stuff, but I mean, you don't have the time or nor do you want to spend the time to, to understand the market, the specific submarket to their level of expertise. And that's where you're really relying on them as a team. And, and like you said, you want to trust, but verify and, and fact check some of the things, but you don't want to replicate every single study that they've done put together. That's why you're kind of relying on some of their data that they've put together for you. So um, now you kind of talked about last thing is the deal in uh, specifically that you're going to look at in terms of your, your process of vetting a deal. So talk about that. Like, are you actually going to a property? Um, some of the maybe well highlight that, but also like, what are some of the criteria that you're looking for in general? Like, I, I know you kind of talked about A class, B class, C class, what are kind of your high level um, uh, things that you look for? Um, unit count, age. Yeah. What are some of your, your things you look for on a property? Yep. Great point. So for me personally, the same disclaimer, everybody's different. I've invested in A, B, and C, nothing below and you know nothing else outside of that. I tend to not do opportunistic plays, meaning let's say we have a property that's 20% occupied for whatever reason, and we're and the business model is going to be to bring that to 100. I don't do that type of investing. And why? I tend to be a more conservative investor. I don't do a lot of new construction, new build, new development stuff either. But a lot of that reason actually comes from cash flow, right? Cash flow is my income. And if I'm not going to have that for three to five years, probably not a deal I'm, I'm going to seriously look at. Uh, so nothing against any of those plays or sectors. It's kind of that higher risk, higher return potential, right? So what I do primarily about 80% roughly in my portfolio is B class. And what I mean by that are 
1980s, 1990s, early 2000s product. And I really like value add business models where the seller has not kept up with pushing rents or renovating units for whatever reason. Again, people have different business strategies. A lot of institutional players, for example, they like to buy newly renovated product or brand new product and then sit on that for five, 10, 15 years, whatever it may be, until it starts needing a lot of maintenance. And then they're offloading those properties, right? To other groups that are in the business to value add, which means renovating landscaping units, branding, signage, covered carports, package locker systems, you name it. I could go on and on, but it's just improving the property for the tenants and also to be able to push rents to just the market level and ideally a little below market so that you're competitive. So that's mostly what I look at in a deal. Unit size on multifamily, I'm typically looking at 200 to 600 units on average. And the reason for that um, it is basically when, when you have a small property, let's say you were doing a, uh, like a 40 unit and you have something pop up, a, a flood, a tornado, you know, a fire. Well, these things can cause such a disruption to cash flow because it's such a small property that it's hard to absorb. Uh, that, that kind of catastrophe, perhaps. Uh, equally so if a bunch of tenants move out, you know, you have fewer units and so your break even maybe hit sooner than later. So I just like having a little more diversification, assuming that the team I'm working with has experience in that. You know, if all the team's ever done are 40 units and now they're buying a 500 unit, I probably aren't, you know, I'm probably not going to do that deal. Uh, with them. So it's trying to align a good property management group that specializes in that particular sector, whether vertically integrated, meaning that the sponsorship team manages their own properties or a third party, uh, like what Ashcroft Capital uses currently. And, um, you know, again, as an LP, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to say is, or trying to ask the question, what you're showing me for a business model is that reasonably achievable? Is that conservative? And mostly what I'm looking at personally is the cash flow. And that's the great thing about older property and stabilized property and looking at cash flow. You have a lot of data to go by, right? As far as price points and where things might be in five or 10 years, it's anybody's guess. So I try to play that middle road, that more conservative play, which is why I'm mostly in B class stuff. Yeah, and cash flow is really predictable because I mean you can look at the past, you know, the 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 financials and kind of see how it's performed in the past, and you can use your best judgment and use assumptions for how that will perform. The cash flow will continue in the future, but I mean, really appreciation and and that's kind of speculative. Like you don't know yep. really. I mean, you can use historical data, but that is kind of a factor that you have. Well, you can force appreciation, but the natural appreciation side of things, you have slim to no no control over that i mean it's really market larger macroeconomic forces that kind of control that so you really want to look if you're looking for that predictable income i mean really got to look for that cash flow type of deal so yeah i i think i skimmed over this uh, earlier on but like you actually going to the property as a passive investor to kind of do your own due diligence but like how does that process go is it some properties you go to some you don't i know it might be different now that that we're in COVID and it's more difficult to travel, but can you kind of touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. One thing I really appreciate among 
various sponsors out there are when they actually make a walkthrough video for the potential investors as they're making the offering. I've seen that done through a licensed inspector who's actually going through the units, showing you, you know, foundation crack here and the current condition of the pool. I mean, you really get a good feel that way. And you're, you're speaking with someone, a licensed professional, you know, or listening uh, to, to their opinions. Uh, I really like that. Primarily, it saves everybody a lot of hassle and time and, and things like that. That being said, I do travel a lot. And pre-COVID uh, in 2019, I went out to uh, Texas as one example where I own a lot of properties among many sponsors. And I just took a full day and I just hit as many as I could one after the next. And I went kind of undercover undercover brother. And I would show up and I would sometimes I'd pretend to be a renter or a tenant. Other times I'd, I'd just tell them who I was. I was an investor because uh, I would get additional access that way. And I'd say, I'd like, I'd like to meet with the contractors. I'd like to see a, a rent at the, or a, a unit that was recently renovated versus, you know, a classic style. And lots of great insights by doing that. I do recommend as an LP, if reasonably and financially possible that you go visit a property, ideally before you invest in it, because once you do, and then you find out later, you don't like it, that sucks. But, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of these were kind of after the fact, but it still was very eye-opening, uh, very educational, and it taught me a lot. You know, it's different than looking at a pro forma and then being there in person and walking the units. So, uh, so I do when I can. That being said, I get it. You know, you live in California, you're investing in New York City. I get it, especially COVID and everything. Maybe maybe it's not reasonable right now, but if you can, yes, or ask for a video if they don't already have it. Maybe they, they you know, have some form of video they can show you. Yeah, and the video kind of seems like a great alternative, especially now if you're getting that level of, of a, a tour from a licensed contractor or something like that to kind of you know, show you the the key fundamentals of the building, structural stuff, and and really get a good sense of the of the property. So that's a great point. So now, one of the big aspects is you get if you're a passive investor, you're getting these lengthy PPMs, offering memorandums, private placement memorandums to kind of like review all the deals specifics, the the pro formas. How do you, as a passive investor, kind of handle that, and what are you looking for? I mean, because these things are very lengthy. There's a lot of legal jargon in them. How do you kind of handle that and kind of go through that process? Because I mean, for a lot of people, that'll just put them to sleep trying to review all the details and that. How do you kind of go through that and filter through the information that's important when you receive a document like that? Yeah, the best advice I can give is to use uh, an attorney, right? To, to look this stuff over. It usually isn't very costly to do so. Additionally, what you can do, it, what I've done is I've gotten to the final stage where I think I'm going to make the investment and I've taken someone in my network that's maybe done, you know, 100 plus deals as an LP, very seasoned and experienced with 20, 30 years, and I'll send it to them and say, is there anything, you know, that, that you see maybe as a red flag or out of the ordinary here with, with the legal docs? Sometimes that's paid, sometimes that's free, but these are things that you can do. Um, if you can understand it all yourself, you know, it definitely read it all. It's very important. Sometimes you see things, but here, here's something that a lot of people don't think about. There's not too many big firms out there doing these legal docs, right? And generally speaking, what I see in my own experience is the same types of templates kind of used over and over, tweaked here and there, but more or less the same stuff, the same structure. So after you look through 10 or 20 of these, 
you generally have the idea, you kind of know what to look for. And that could be a good point too. If, if on your first few deals, you're working with an attorney and they're pointing out kind of what to look for or what they see or how they're, they're looking at it, then you can take that knowledge and apply it to everything towards the future. So you may not need necessarily to, to pay for that service every single time on every single deal. And last thing on that is that should be like the very last step you know, you should already know the the sponsor. It's so many people, and I say this because I work in investor relations. So many people will reach out, not not even having ever contact us for any reason, and just go right to send me a PPM. And it's like we're happy to do so, but it is. Are you asking the right questions? You know what I mean? Like, is that the first step? Maybe it is for that person, but I think that you should probably already know the team and, and the track record, the experience and, and their reputation. And, and having gone through all of that process to the very end, this is the step you usually take right before sending funds. And that's usually kind of the make it or break it point. It's the last thing that you're vetting out before you're making that decision to invest. But again, my perspective, my opinion. Yeah, and that gives a good perspective there. I mean, I just wanted to pick your brain on that and, and kind of see what your thoughts on our, on this are because you've obviously received so many PPMs. You've probably reviewed so many legal documents. And and for you, you see those trends, those templates, those, you know, you start to get really comfortable with them. But for somebody, a passive investor that hasn't, say they're doing their first deal or second deal where it's kind of new to them, it's foreign and it's like, oh man, it can be very intimidating to receive this 100 plus page document where yeah. you're trying to skim through and be like, oh, man, what, what do I review on here? Where should I be focusing my time and how do I kind of deal with this lengthy document? I mean, it all sounded good when I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to get passive income and invest in this private placement. And then you're like, oh, I've got to look at all these details. So I uh, just want to, it's good to kind of hear your perspective on that. So yeah, given where you're at today, like you've kind of made that big transition, you're, you're in passive investing full time. Like, is this something you kind of continue, look to continue to do for the foreseeable future? Or do you kind of have some growth plans that, yeah, what are you kind of like focusing on in the coming years? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. And I get asked this all the time from all different types of people. The common question is, Travis, when are you going to do your own deal? When are you going to become a GP? And, and the answer is never. I hope not. I hope, you know, mark my words on this. I hope never. And that's not anything against being a GP. It's just I know what I like about being a passive investor. I have people in my network that are full-time LPs and hundreds of deals who are in their 60s and 70s at this point. And it, it, it's a lifestyle that I want. That's what I enjoy. That's what fits my strengths and, and therefore complements, you know, what weaknesses I have too. I played the active game. Me personally, wasn't very good at it. You know, doing fix and flips, not very well. Doing vacation rentals, not very well, you know? And so, yeah, I could, I could try to work on that stuff and, and try to get better. But the fact is I always felt like there was a hundred people above me doing it way better and it's like, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> and so that's the philosophy and the path that I decided to take. Yeah, it's perfect. And you got your philosophy, you know what you want. So, I mean, you're, you're best off going with what fits your lifestyle, your goals. And, and some people might try to fit themselves in a box and, and being like, oh, it sounds very attractive to go into active. I should do that. Well, you might be like a very skilled professional in, in your day job and you might enjoy that a ton and and you're earning great income and you're like hey i just want to deploy some of it into into a passive investment and and complement or um, help increase the income that i'm receiving and then grow that passive investment side of things so 
yeah, I mean, really determining what lifestyle works for you. And sounds like you've really got it nailed down on what, what you like to do with your, uh, with your portfolio as you grow and scale. So um, I'm going to start wrapping up the conversation, taking it into the final four questions here, where you just give short to the point answers. So first off here, what is your favorite real estate or business book? Um, the most recent one I've read is The Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke. And it's a great resource for limited partners like myself, those getting started in the space. It, it's kind of an entry-level book, entry to medium, but it's great uh, resources in that book. I agree. That was a fantastic one and really the most comprehensive one that I've seen or read in especially on the passive and the LP side of things, because you're seeing a lot of more educational resources and books and stuff coming out for the active side. But this one really dives into some heavy details on, on the passive side of things. So definitely recommend that for somebody looking to learn more about passive investing. So what is the one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? I wish I knew how important self-education was. I had read one or two books you could call it complete right there, right? That's about all I did when I got started. And pros and cons to that, but the biggest cons being, I never took the time to understand the full scope of what's available out there. I didn't understand active and passive. I didn't know you could be a multifamily investor with you know, potentially 50,000 to invest, right? I, 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 if you would have asked me in 2009, I would have said, you gotta be a billionaire. You need 40 years experience in real estate. That Those are the only people buying apartments, but that's just so false, but that was all self-education that taught me that. Yeah, it's so important getting educated and and having that motivation to really learn and and always grow your grow yourself, your mind, and and self-education is a huge aspect to that. So, what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? <laughs> Same answer, self self-education, man. Like even if it's just a small tidbit, even if you just read an article on the industry today and it takes you five minutes, that's important. Or you or you or you follow up on like the eviction moratorium that's in place right now. What does that even mean? How does how is that affecting people? Just something like that, you know, one little thing a day, like Charlie Munger says, I try to go to bed, you know, a little bit smarter than I was when I woke up, and that compounding effect can make a huge impact over time. Yeah, and compounding effect, I totally agree with that. It's those small little disciplines that you add over time and really compounds over time. And I'm sure you've probably heard of the book, The Compound Effect. Uh, yeah. That's a book that I've really enjoyed and and a premise that kind of, yeah, if you continually do those small little actions, it'll just over 5, 10, 20 years, it just compounds and stacks up over time and allows you to have some massive results in your life. So Last thing here, obviously you're a passive investor. You got some free time on your hands when, when you decide to have it. So what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, my wife and I, we, we travel. So before COVID, you know, internationally, mostly, um, she works for an airline. So that makes it pretty convenient. Uh, but, you know, that's really what our passion is. We love just adventure and discovering uh, new places, even if it's, you know, visiting family and friends, you know, it's great and, and very important to us to have the ability to do that. Amazing. So last thing here, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you or maybe have a call or something like that? Yeah. So I mentioned that the 15 minute call that I do open to anybody out there. So uh, www.ashcroftcapital.com forward slash connect with Travis. In there, you'll find a link to set up 
at your leisure, a 15 minute uh, free Q&A call. We can discuss whatever it is you'd like. I have conversations with 18 year olds looking to buy their first single family home to a 70 year old that just heard the word syndication the other day and wants to know what that means. Uh, everything in the middle, accredited, non-accredited, please reach out, happy to help. Additionally, I'm on, you know, I blog on, on Bigger Pockets, a little bit on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Passive Investor Tips. So if you want uh, more content on just kind of a day in the life or a life in the life of a passive investor, that's where you can find that content. Amazing. Yeah. So a lot of places to reach out, connect, learn more about what you're doing. So I appreciate you for sharing that. So Travis, really appreciate you coming on the show today. I learned a lot. You sh- I'm, I'm sure my audience will learn a lot too. So yeah, you added a ton of value. Thanks for sharing and uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks, Marcus. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.